Okay, so the Parsha's Vayigash, that you would find that on page 287 in the Chumash. 287. So, the name of this class, we, we've been calling it the Shadow Side of Torah. And I've been, like last week, we looked at parts of the Torah that we usually overlook or that we're not sure what to do with. And as I was studying the Parsha this week, this moment of the, of the meeting, the encounter between Judah and Joseph is so incredibly powerful that I couldn't avoid it. You know, I didn't want to go here, I didn't want to go there, I just want to go right here. So that's what we'll do. Um, and uh, for those unfamiliar with the narrative, we should go back to the end of last week's portion. So that's back on page 279, which is not, which is just the previous verse. Remember, in this, in this chumash, everything in between are commentary and other, uh, other uh, stuff, but the text itself goes directly from page 279, where you can see it's verse 17 is the last verse. And then on 287, it continues with the next verse, 18. So these are contiguous, but they're divided intentionally by the rabbis, the ancient rabbis, as the dividing point between one week's portion and the other. We've talked about it a lot. This is the best cliffhanger in the Torah. Uh, because here, on page 279, Joseph has been uh, um, testing his brothers in last week's portion. They come down from the land of Canaan to Egypt for food because of the famine. Joseph is the second in command in Egypt in charge of all the food resources during the famine. Joseph recognizes his brothers, but they don't recognize him. And he tests them to see, since the last time he saw them, 20 years ago, uh, um, they uh, threw him in a pit and sold him into slavery. He's, the, mo the plain meaning of the text is he's not so sure whether he should trust them now or not. Um, and he tests them by seeing whether, if he insists on he, they don't know it's him. If he insists that his younger brother Benjamin, who is his only full blood brother, the other son of Rachel, uh, uh, that they have to bring him to prove to himself that Benjamin's alive, and now he tests them last week, if you recall, by planting stolen goods in Benjamin's bag, sending them on their way, and then sending his, his uh, policemen after them, his soldiers after them, to say, somebody stole my goblet. And they look and look, and lo and behold, it's in Benjamin's bag. So the, 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 the plot thickens. They, he drags them back into his presence, and he says, I'm only going to keep the one who... Uh, um, stole my stuff, 
that's what's fair, that's what's just, which happens to be Benjamin. Benjamin, Jacob, the father, had said, I'm never letting go of Benjamin. I've already lost my Joseph, you know, my beloved Rachel's firstborn. I'm not going to lose the other one. But they say, what are we going to do? Die of starvation? Let us do it. And Judah is doing most of the talking here in this last week's portion. So, uh, on page 279, on verse 14, well, in verse 12, it says, And he began searching with the eldest and ended with the youngest until he found the goblet in Benjamin's bag. Sounds like a dramatic setup, doesn't it? Like, everything sounds calculated here. He goes through the oldest and the next and the next. Can you imagine how these brothers, what their experience is, as it's not in one, not until it's the one that their father said, okay, take him. If he dies, he dies. I don't know what to do. He's just completely beside himself. And until he found the goblet in Benjamin's bag, they tore their mantles. Each then reloaded his ass and they went back to the city. And Judah and his brothers entered Joseph's house. He was still there. They fell to the ground before him. Joseph said to them, what is this deed you have done? Did you not know that a man like me constantly practices divination? In other words, I knew it was you. I. And Judah replied, Mano Marlodoni, what can we say to my Lord? Manidaber, how can we speak? And how can we possibly justify ourselves? God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Here we are. We will all be your slaves. We and the one who was caught with the goblet in his possession. So Judah offers all of them. It's, it's not, I don't think you could call this like a rational, you know, negotiation. He's just, he throws himself on the mercy of the court, right? Uh, and uh, what does Jace Joseph say? Khalilali, far be it from me to do this. Uh, only the man in whose possession the goblet will f- was found, he will be the slave, my slave. The rest of you, alu le shalom el avichem. Go in peace to your father. Okay, so that's the end of last week's portion. Now, first of all, I want to point out the word lishalom. I want to talk about that a little because it comes up a lot in uh, the um, narrative of Joseph and his brothers. So we know that shalom means peace, right? Most of us, many of us don't know, we've talked about it some, what the uh, actual etymology of shalom is in Hebrew. It doesn't mean peacefulness. It means wholeness. Shalem. Shalem means whole. Shlemut means fulfillment or perfection. Uh, when you say ma shlomcha in Hebrew, if you ever did a little modern Hebrew, 
It means how are you, but it, it literally means how, what is your state of well-being. Refuah shlema, we say, a completeness, complete healing. So shalom doesn't mean the absence of conflict in the way it means peace does in English. Uh, it means fulfillment, wholeness, completeness, well-being. So it's a beautiful word. So the reason I mention that is that this go in peace comes up over and over in the story of Jacob and his 12 sons. And there's a sense that on the mythic level, as we've discussed in previous classes, on sort of archetypal level, 12 in the ancient world and in today represents the entire zodiac, which was a map of the entire cosmos, the 12 quadrants of, of everything with Jacob at the center of the wheel, right? And the 12, and you've seen so many, uh, even that gets rep represented in modern uh, synagogues all the time, where there'll be 12 like stained glass windows. At the Hadassah Hospital, there's the famous Chagall stained glass windows, each one representing one of the 12 tribes. So 12 is a number of completion, of wholeness. That shalom, that shlemut, of Jacob and the children of Israel representing this completeness, the 12 tribes, uh, gets shattered at the very beginning of the Joseph story. So let's look back at that. I just I was thinking about this and I wanted to talk with you about it. So if you don't mind turning a lot of pages, look back at 246. That's the beginning of Vayeshev, chapter 37, verse 1. Chapter 37, verse 1, on page 246. So right at the beginning of the saga, it says, this is the, in verse 2, this is the family history of Jacob. When Joseph was 17 years old, he would tend the flock alongside his brothers. He was an attendant along with the sons of Bilhan and Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph would bring malicious reports about them to their father. So Joseph is already, uh, what, whatever, whatever sense of harmony and wholeness there was, Joseph is disrupting it in the first verse of his story, right? Um, and Israel loved Joseph better than his other sons, and he was to him the son of his old age, and he therefore made a coat of many colors. When his brothers saw that he was the one their father loved more than any of his brothers, they hated him and could not bear to speak peaceably to him. Now look in the Hebrew. They couldn't speak peaceably to him. So this word shalom and the wholeness of the family is um, broken at the beginning of the saga. The, the goal is to, it would seem, one of the goals of a good story is to have brokenness that then somehow wholeness gets restored, which does happen in a kind of um, tenuous way by the end, end of the telling. But that's not the only time uh, and, and also that phrase, lo yachlu dabro, they could not 
speak to him peaceably. So keep that phrase in mind. Um, then when he tells his first dream, they hated him all the more. And, uh, and even more so. And then look in verse 12 on the next page on 247. And when his brothers went to tend their father's flock at Shechem, Israel said to Joseph, Surely your brothers are tending the flock at Shechem. Come, let me send you to them. And he answered, Here I am. Verse 14. It says in English, Israel then said to him, Pray go see how your brothers are and how the flock is doing and bring me back word. Now look at the Hebrew. Vayomer lo. He said to him, Lechna, please go, re'e et shlom achecha. Go look, uh, go, go see to the shalom of your brothers. And also it says, ve'et shalom hatzon, and the shalom of the flocks. Vashiveni davar, and bring me back word. Remember, what's the kind of davar he's been bringing before? Dibatam ra'ah, slanderous, right? So uh, here it's all set up. Can he speak peaceably to them? Can they speak peaceably to him? No. Can he speak peaceably about them? No. There's, there's just uh, that, that, that um, goal of peace, of harmony, harmonious fulfillment, the entire circle being in place. It just can't happen. That's the, that's the brokenness of the situation. And the word shalom happens there. Um, and then there's, I'm going to show you another place where it happens. I have all my stickies. Um, just one sec. Ah. Um. Uh, on page 278 at the top of the page this is when they have come back to Egypt for the second time bearing with them Benjamin the youngest because when they first came Benjamin wasn't Jacob wouldn't let him go but Joseph somehow wants to see the whole family. So the 12 of them are now in the room. And they, at the top of 278, this is chapter 43, verse 27, they bowed before him to the ground. He asked them how they were. In Hebrew, 27, He asked them about their shalom their state of shalomness. Vayomer. And he said, Hashalom avichem hazaken? And what about your elderly father? Hashalom. What's the shalom of your, of your elderly father? He hasn't revealed himself yet, right? Asheramartem. Haudenu chai? That you put right. He's still alive, right? And they said, Shalom Our father, your servant, our father is Shalom. This isn't true. 
right, that when I'm reading it this way, this isn't true. They're saying it. He's yearning for it. He's just, and it's still broken. They're all in the same room together and there's no shalom. I was thinking about this. Wow. Uh, and, uh, and, and you might think shalom is a word used constantly in the Torah. It's not. It's not an infrequent word, but this, as one thing that we know from Torah studies, that words that get repeated over and over in a story, your ears are supposed to prick up, okay? So that's, uh, that's the next time when shalom. And then on the bottom of 279, where we started this little excursion, Joseph says, far be it from me to do this. The man in whose possession the goblet was found, he shall be my slave. The rest of you, alula shalom el avichem, go up in shalom to your father. Right, so, no, no, no way they can, no way, they, and, and it, it's, is it ironic or almost like um, painfully, I'm trying to think of the right adjective, uh, uh, it, it's painful. Right, they couldn't he, leave without Benjamin, you mean? Right, he's keeping Benjamin. So now say, no, we'll all be your slaves. So this, this sort of big narrative goal of restoring a sense of completeness, of shleimut, to the, to the, family, uh, uh, star, the family system, right, to the cosmos, this twelveness, is continually being almost mocked, is what I wanted to, the word I wanted to use. It's practically being mocked in the story with use of the words. Gail? So just one, one other thing I'd add, because I agree completely, but I, I, when he sends Joseph to check on his brother Shalom, yeah. they're in Shechem. It says Shechem. And in the chapter just before this, oh, what happened in Shechem? of Dina and the massacre by the brothers. In that very place was the rape right of there. Dina and the massacre by the brothers of, the, of Shechem. Of the and the, the, mm-hmm. All the men. They killed, and they took the women, and they killed the cattle. I mean, it, so when there's the Torah is saying something ironic. Ironic. How can there be shalom right. in this uh, place right. where you have just deceitfully slaughtered right. a whole bunch of people? Yeah. So that, I think mean, there's a that's all. Thank you, thank you, Miriam. What I have also is that <clears throat> seems that Joseph is so concerned about his brother's reaction to him. But there's nothing that says where, how he set them up. How he was responsible for them hating him. Ah. Uh, right? Uh-huh. I mean, like, they didn't suddenly automatically hate him because he was Jacob's favorite son. He, he perpetrated, he perpetuated uh-huh. this. By, by tattling on them. Mm-hmm. And being, you know, mm-hmm. Dreams, I'm better than you. So, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. yes. Thank you, Gail. There's so much commentary later on evil tongue, evil speech. Evil speech. Mm-hmm. And this begins. The phrase is that he speaks, says evil things. The right. speaks evil of them. Mm-hmm. That's what it says. He speaks mm-hmm. evil. And I'm wondering how much I've never read anything about the rabbis connecting it to this whole breaking. Of wow! Among the, um, sure. This, among the tribes. What I can't. Tribes? I can't quote it for you, but in the, the, you know, 
this, this is also self-evident that um, slanderous speech, that undermining people with words, all of that, we all know how that can divide and destroy, mm. right? I mean, it's just... And in Judaism, it's a, an elevated and focused concept about the power of language to destroy or to create. Uh, it's a very big focus. And um, so I bet it gets talked about, but I'd have to look. The other place in Torah where this word debat, uh, he brought um, debatam ra'ah, debara'ah, a bad, a slanderous report, or a bad, uh, is with the spies who go up to the land of Canaan to scout it out in the book of Numbers. And it says, and they brought back Dibara'ah, they brought back a slanderous report about the land. Um, so that's the other place in Torah where I remember it coming up. The other, the other theme about shalom versus, and holiness versus absence, is there's a word that comes up quite a number of times, also in describing Joseph, which is the word enenu. He's not with us. He's not here. He's gone. And again, that just seems like an ordinary word, but it gets repeated over and over again. I'll, I'll point it out to you. After, um, after they set, the brothers sell Joseph to the traders, the, 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 the caravan who take him down to Egypt, Reuben, who was going to try to restore Joseph to his father, went back to the pit, but Joseph was not there in the pit, and Reuben tore his clothes. There's those clothes again. Uh, going back to his brothers, he said, Hayeled enenu, the boy is not with us, is not there. Va'ani, ana aniva, and me, what am I going to do? That's what, he, that's, that's what he says. So the boy is a nenu. And then, uh, if you want to look ahead in Miket on 275, this is chapter um, uh, uh, 42, verse 35. They've come back from Egypt the first time. And the first time, Joseph filled up their sacks and also put their money bags back in the sacks. He didn't take any of their money. When they emptied their sacks, each one's money bag was in his sack. And when they caught sight of their money bag, they and their father, they were struck with fear. Their father Jacob said to them, You have left me bereft. Shikaltem. Uh, Yosef Einenu. Joseph is no more, is not with us. Shimon Einenu. Now Shimon is no more because Shimon got, uh, um, Joseph kept him kind of as a surety, what do you say? Hostage, but that's not what I mean. Um, guarantee. Guarantee that. Uh, He's, screwing, he's messing with their minds, you know. Shimon is no more, so... And now you would take Benjamin from me? Uh, 
and uh, all these things have come down on me. So there, once again, Joseph is referred to as no more. And as it happens, uh, that happens one more time. Um, uh, oh, back on 273, I sorry, I skipped over that one. When they're discussing with him, he's calling them spies. And uh, he said to them, no, indeed, it is the, I'm on verse 12. Well, verse 11, they said, we are all of us sons of the same man. We are honest. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, no, indeed, it's the land's nakedness that you've come to see. And in other words, to reconnoiter. They then said, said, your servants are 12 brothers. Your servants are 12 brothers, sons of a man in the land of Canaan. The youngest is with our father right now, meaning Benjamin, and one is no more. The echad einenu. So Joseph is referred to as three times as being no more. And I'm pointing that out. Again, this is my exploration today. I'm pointing out that somehow that links to shalom for me. That having one, having one um, uh, quadrant, one slice, of the whole pie missing no more means that it's gone and that's what i was reflecting on as i saw th these this repetition of the words miriam well it's interesting that the brothers even though the brothers they knew that they sold joseph into slavery it's as if they wiped them out yes like erased right they could in their yeah, they could still be in existence. And what else did Joseph do from his perspective? He if never you, sent a message. He never sent a message. Right. He, he was now vizier of Egypt. He, he could have. send out an all-points bulletin, locate this guy in Canaan. He could do anything he wanted to. Pharaoh would do whatever he wanted. He never. Not only that, we get a clue when he has his children. What does he name his firstborn? Menashe which means, because I have forgotten. <coughs> so there's a, some kind of willful, I would say, some psychological suppression going on here on Joseph's part. And he, in this approach to the story, he is in turmoil upon seeing his brothers. Right? Because he also... I have, I, he called, let me, let's, let's, let's review what he calls his sons, which is a crucial moment in um, Mikhek's last week's portion. Uh, oh, thank you, Ellen. Page 271. Uh, 272. Oh, uh, that's right. Page 272 on the top. That's Chapter 41, verse 50. Two sons were born to Joseph before the years of famine arrived, born to him by Asnat, daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. Remember, he also has an Egyptian name now. Tafnat Paneach, and everyone like bows to him when his chariot goes by. Joseph named the firstborn Menashe, for God Nashani has made me forget all the troubles I endured in my father's house. And then he named the second son Ephraim, for God has Hifrani, has made me fruitful 
in the land of my affliction. Was that an Egyptian name, Ephraim? It sounds very no. It's interesting. These are okay. these appear to be Jewish names. He yeah. these appear to be Hebrew names, Canaanite Hebrew names, uh, but their etymology. So again, I think that plays up the ambivalence and the ambiguity of Joseph's experience. You know, because you can suppress you can suppress memory, but it's not going to disappear. It's going to live somewhere in you. Um, so he names his sunset. So they think he doesn't exist. And in some sense, Joseph has tried to erase his own uh, Josephness. Right? He has a new name. He has a new outfit. He has, he, uh, has an Egyptian wife who's the daughter of a high priest of Egypt. He names his son, forget. It's deep. It's really deep. Uh, how is whole Yes. There's something here that about the that strikes me as the ambiguity of deception. That um, we think of deception as being a bad thing, but ultimately, unless I'm missing another step, it's a deception that Joseph plays on his brothers that, that leads them to protect Benjamin. Isn't that correct? Oh, there's all kinds of ambiguity in this story. But I'm just uh, saying that the, the, the theme of deception keeps coming back, and yet ultimately it leads his brothers to sacrifice themselves for the good of their brother. It, it, is that true? That Joseph's, Joseph keeps raising the ante with his deception, uh, and f trying to force his brother's hands. Uh, and they do, they, they do the right thing. Judah does the right thing. Judah is going to become the leader because of the way Judah responds. Um, that's right. Uh, so, so I'm asking, is the Torah telling us that deception can be a tool for good? I wouldn't put it that, that sort of s simply. I would say that this is the way things go around. It's like you, there's, there's this massive amount of... Um, of willful suppression of, of memory here going on, um, and the the but at, if you read the portion carefully, you, you it the the when the brothers realize what's going on, they whisper to each other, and we didn't read this passage. See, this is because of what we did to Joseph, mm -hmm. yes. and jo and Joseph, who they don't know can overhear them, leaves the room and weeps. And so there's some process going on here. And I don't think the Torah is making a value judgment statement about deception per se. But I think the question is, here we are at this impasse, at the end of Miketz, which makes it so much that more of a cliffhanger, where now coming right back to it. Oh, Barb. Oh, well, no, I don't want to. Okay, so now, um, so now let's go back to 279, where we started. Well, actually, in regards to what you were talking about, deception, yeah. though, I'm, I'm bumping ahead for the moment to 290, if that's okay. When they go to, to Jacob to say, oh, your son Joseph is actually still alive, and he doesn't believe it. Because if you deceive people enough, they're like, really? Right. Rashi yeah. says, you know, liars. Who's going to believe liars? They've already okay. been. So, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Um, okay. So now we're on 279. We're all just about ready to go into this week's portion, where... We end on this line. No, 
Joseph says, no, only uh, the one who stole the goblet has to be my slave. The rest of you go up in peace, le shalom, in wholeness to your father. Um, and that's where the portion ends. The question here in this intense moment is what is it going to take to restore real sense of wholeness, interconnection, and harmony here? What is it going to take? It's been shattered for 20 years. What is it going to take? That's what the next, that's what our portion then answers. Miriam? I just had a question in my mind. Yeah. Okay, then now let's turn ahead to page 287, to the beginning of this week's portion. So he's just said, go up in peace, in wholeness, to your father. Judah now approached him and said, that's where the Torah portion gets its name, Vayigash, approach. It's a significant word because it, um, it, it naturally gets our attention as stepping up, right? Judah is going to step up now. He's going to risk it all. He's going to, and he makes in the next 17 verses what's understood to be the longest speech in the Genesis, right? In the Torah, actually. But definitely in Genesis, the longest, the longest, it's not exactly a speech. It's a, um, it's an outpouring. Um, let's read it. Oh, and I'm going to say this in advance. The word father is repeated in this speech 14 times. Wow. So again, both from, the, both from the literary approach of Torah, that's the most important thing, but from the psychological, which is so, in, so, so deeply entwined in this story, this is all about Father. Everything's been about Father Jacob. And by calling out Father 14 times, it's a big deal. I do have a question. Yeah. Now the story of Tamar happened prior to that's right. So that Judah, as a father, gets deceived. So that's behind him. He, that's right. Like Judah, we've talked about this before. The, in it, Judah gets the most attention in, last, in, in uh, this narrative, next, second to Joseph. So the narrative really is about both Joseph and about Judah's maturation into the leader of the twelve. That's what emerges right here. And of the Jewish people, ultimately. And therefore, and, and ultimately, of the Jewish people. So, can I just yeah. ask, where was he in birth order, Judah? He's the fourth. Okay. So that's one of the interesting things here, is yeah. that Reuben is the firstborn. Reuben appears to be the acting as firstborn when they throw him in the pit, and he, he tries to save him. Yeah. But Reuben... Um, fades away as the primary, uh, as the first, the firstborn. Did you read Jonathan Sachs's yes. column about Jew, about Reuben? I de- Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, Lord Rabbi, how do you say, Rabbi, Rabbi Lord? Rabbi Lord. Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs, who is is you know really one of the leading 
uh, Torah commentators and ethical, ethical teachers of our moment uh, uh, writes a lot of Torah commentary. And he did something I'd never seen before, which he said, let's look at Reuben and what happens each time Reuben is mentioned in the Torah. And I, didn't, I don't want to digress there, but, I'll, but unless you want to say something I about it. I just want to say, he and, and Shimon led the charge against Shechem. They took it on themselves. That was Shimon and Levi. Levi. It's Levi. Oh, Shimon and Levi. Right. Never mind. Well, what was Reuben? Reuben's... Is Reuben over the concubine? Reuben sleeps with his father's oh. concubine. Uh, all right. And who he did something bad. Yeah, he did. <laughs> <laughs> but it was Reuben who was held back the first time. He stayed back in, in uh, Egypt. No, it was Shimon. Shimon. Shimon, the, Reuben, Shimon, and Levi are the first, second, and third. Judah is the fourth, Judah. So Reuben, Rabbi Sachs does a really cool thing, which I thought was very, um, <coughs> had, had some meat in it, you know, it wasn't, which was showing that each time Reuben shows up in the narratives in, in Genesis, he's a kind of ambivalent character. He's, he's, uh, he doesn't quite show up. Uh, and he's not a bad, it's not a, he's not a villain, but he, there's something about him that's not leadership material. <laughs> uh, and again, uh, that would be a whole other fascinating thing to look at. Yes? Did you see what Rabbi Sachs wrote for this week? No. Okay, can I say, I'd like to say it before because it's really relevant. I'd love it. Each, okay, so he was saying that it is quite possible that Joseph never gets back to his father, never contacts him because he feels his father had rejected him because the speech that's given just before uh, Jacob sends him out into the field to, to his brothers is the one where his father says, who are you to dream that we all bow down to you? Me, your brothers, your mother? Come on, and is angry. And then the next sentence, he sends him out to his brothers. And we know that from later on, that at the very end, when he's giving his benedictions, he curses Reuben, Levi, and Simeon. Yes. So we can assume that in this family, it's known that Jacob holds grudges. Oh. And so Rabbi Sachs is arguing that maybe when he sends Joseph out, he kind of doesn't care what's going to happen to him, or at least that's what Joseph he's mad. thinks. Uh -huh. he's, Joseph thinks he's thinking that. And so Joseph turns off, oh. just as he just like, why would Joseph really why would Joseph never try to contact his <clears throat> father? What a what a great drush that is. The and the reason I'm going to repeat what Gail described in Rabbi Sachs's uh, teaching this week is that in Vayeshev, first Joseph says his dream about the the moon, eleven stars and the moon and the sun all bowing down to him. And his father says, what? My mo you, me, your mother, and your brothers are all going to bow down to you? And his brothers hate him, and it says, and Joseph keeps the matter in mind, and then says, hey, go check up on your brothers. So Joseph, who's 17, could be heading out feeling like his father doesn't you know, love him anymore. And then his whole life unfolds from there. So he needs to... So Thank you. It made a lot of sense mm -hmm. when he said it, mm -hmm. yeah. and it relates to the speech. Yeah, because it's yeah. all about his father. It's all about father. Yeah. Okay. So, so when he sends them out, well, and look what they did to me. Maybe that's what my father wanted. Yes, I tell you, there's no more psychologically like rich material than this particular story in the Torah. Yeah. Yehuda's name. So you have to go back to. Um, 
in when, Vajetze. But when, when, it was, when they were having, when Jacob was having all the, all the, all the children, Leah is the, was married first, married and first had four sons, but the names, um, they're all like, maybe like, uh, Shimon, maybe, maybe, maybe my husband will pay attention to me. Um, Reu, then, look, a son. Now maybe my husband will love me. Then the second one, Shimon, maybe my husband will, you know, pay attention attention and hear that I had another son for him. And Levi, now maybe my husband will accompany me because I've had another son. But then something happened around the time she conceived her fourth baby, and Jacob was nice to her and paid attention to her. And so Yehuda comes from Toda, which Uh means thankfulness. Well, or there's no indication that Jacob was nice to her. That's one. But but she felt. (laughs) Something. Something changed for Leah, and she, and she just, just she called Yehuda gratitude. Mm-hmm. I'm grateful for this son. So there's even in their names there's encoded. So when we have to give a brief, yes, all your psychologists we have, here. We have to give a brief a brief synopsis of the Tamar interlude. Well, yes, because, we were just getting to that. Okay. Um, uh, so let you can tell it, but I just want to frame it. Okay. Now, so. Just to finish those thoughts. So, Reuven, the firstborn, loses his position. Shimon and Levi, the second and thirdborn, are the ones who perpetrate the massacre and the deception against the, the people of Shechem when, uh, over the rape of their, daughter, their sister Dina. Judas the fourth. Is he going to be leadership material? <laughs> it's not clear. It's not clear in uh, the beginning of Judah's story where uh, he says, hey, let's not kill him, let's sell him into slavery. It's like, that's not the best leadership I've ever heard. <laughs> that's at the beginning of Vayeshev. What changes for Judah is that we get a whole chapter in between the Joseph narrative of the story of Judah's story, in which he changes. Do you want to tell it? He goes immediately after they tell uh, Jacob that Joseph is dead. He goes off to live someplace else, and he marries and has three sons. And the f- first one is promised to uh, marries a woman named Tamar, and he's not pleasing to God, so he dies. And there's this whole Leverite thing where if your older brother dies, if your brother dies without having a kid, then you're supposed to, the next son is supposed to marry the widow to maintain the brother's name. And the second son was Onan, and he wasn't happy about this, so he spilled his seed, which is a whole other thing. Where the word Onanism comes from, if you know that word. That's where that comes from. And God wasn't pleased with that and kills him. And there's Judah, he's got a little boy who's not old enough to get married yet, so he sends his daughter-in-law back to live with her family. Mm-hmm. But when his oldest son, his youngest son gets old enough to marry, he doesn't do anything. He doesn't want to lose his third son. So Tamar goes out, pretends that she's a sacred prostitute, and basically... And he's lost his wife. Oh, and Judah's, Judah's lost his wife. And, and he's on his way to visit somebody, and he meets the sacred prostitute, and they sleep together, and he, she says, well, now what are you going to pay me? Well, I don't really have money. I'll take your ring and your staff. 
as proof that we slept together and that you owe me something. Well, Joseph, uh, Judah remembers that. He, he sends somebody out to pay her. Then nobody could find her. He said, well, what can I do? And then word comes that his daughter-in-law is, is playing the harlot. She's pregnant. He calls, goes out in the middle of the town square, calls her out, and says, you know, you shouldn't have been doing that, sleeping around. And she says, well, first of all, I was supposed to marry your, your third son, and you never sent him to me. And second of all, I slept with the man who, who owns this ring and this staff. And Judah looks at her and says, she is more righteous than I am, and admits that it was he that slept with her, and uh, she has, is it twins? She has twins. And uh, it's the same in and out thing, and, uh, and a red cord thing, and the younger one is Peretz, who is it's a breach. But this is more than we need to know. More than we, but, but, <laughs> but what we need to know is that Judah, Judah has grown into recognizing when he's been wrong. And so he's now able to take leadership when they're down in Egypt. He's lost a son. He's lost two sons. Two sons. And uh, and he um, said, and and when um, they bring his signet and his his signet ring and his staff to him, they say, ah, "Please, sir, do you recognize these?" Which is exactly what he and his brothers said to their father when they brought Joseph's coat, torn and covered with goat blood. Uh, excuse me, Dad, do you recognize these? And Jacob falls to pieces and says, my son has been torn by beasts and spends the next 20 years in grief. He's only going to revive in this week's portion when they come to him and say, Joseph's alive. And so Judah recognizes from his own loss, especially when he hears those words, do you recognize these? Can you imagine? I want to make that movie. You I was know. just thinking the same thing. Oh mm -hmm. my gosh. Uh, and so, of all the brothers... Only Judah and Joseph are focused on to the degree that we can discern their arc of maturation, right? So Judah's not the same at this moment, at the beginning of our portion, where uh, why he mentions father 14 times? Maybe it's because he's the father. Who knows what it feels like? Maybe he now, you know, just as how do we understand until we've been through that sort of you know, part of our lives. Uh, he's not callow, and he's not a uh, he's not a, a young jerk anymore. Um, and so, Judah approaches Joseph. We're on two eighty seven, or at the beginning of the portion. Please, my lord, give your servant a hearing, and do not let your anger flare up at your servant, for you are like Pharaoh. My, huh? You are like Pharaoh. You've got all power. He's got all the power. He's Pharaoh the says he's the man. Remember, Pharaoh said, only the throne is higher than you. Do whatever you want. He can do whatever he wants except, except try to overturn the Pharaoh. It just feels like it's a double. Oh, yeah, for you are like Pharaoh. You're right. Ki chamocha Because what does Pharaoh mean to us? Yeah. He, is he acting like a tyrant? Oh, I never thought of that. My Lord asked his servants, do you have a father or brother? And we said to my Lord, we have an aged father and a young boy of his old age whose full brother is dead. They're talking about Joseph. They think he's dead. 
He alone was left of his mother, so his father loves him all the more. You then said to your servants, Bring him down here and let me lay eyes on him. But we said to my Lord, The lad cannot leave his father. If he leaves his father, he will die. You then said to your brothers, If your youngest brother does not come down with you, you'll never see my face again. So when we went up to your servant, my father, we related to him my Lord's words. And when our father said, Go back and buy us a bit of food, we said, We can't go down. Only if our youngest brother is with us will we go down, for we won't be allowed to see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. And your servant, my father, then said to us, you know that of the two my wife bore me, one is gone from my side. Um, I just want to see what that is in Hebrew. Um, uh, 28. He has surely been ripped to shreds, and I haven't seen him to this day. If you take this one too from me, and some calamity befalls him, you will lower my gray head in woe to Sha'ol. And now Sha'ol is the underworld. Right? That means the place, the, the world of shades. There's no hell in the Bible. That's a later uh, invention. Um, and now if I go to your servant, my father, and the lad whose whole being is bound up in his, nafsho kshura b'nafsho. What beautiful language it is. That means their souls are completely intertwined. intertwined. Um, and the lad is not with us, and he sees that the lad is not there, he will die. And your servants will have lowered your servant, our father's gray head in anguish to Sha'ol, for your servant made himself responsible for the lad to my father. Your servant means me, Judah, because Judah had promised in the previous chapter, we didn't read this, but Judah is the one stepping up saying, I will act as a surety for him. If, if I don't bring Benjamin back, you can have my son, my other sons killed. Right, right. He says that? He, my other son's killed? Well, anyway, we'll look. We'll look. If I don't bring him back to you, I will stand guilty before my father for all time. So now, please let your servant remain as my Lord's slave. I mean, let me stay as a slave in place of the lad. And let the lad go home with his brothers. For how can I go home to my father without the lad and thus see the harm my father will suffer? So this is everything that Judah did the first time. He, they sold, him, they sold uh, Joseph to slavery. They came back with the torn coat. Do you recognize this, Dad? Everything he did, he knows now he, he can't do that again. He could never do it again. He will never do it again. Now, that's the end of his speech. This, 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 is, not a, this is like uh, an incredible outpouring. Um, and uh, it's different than what he says at the end of, at the end of Miketz, where he says, uh, we'll all be your slaves. In other words, this isn't a legal argument. This is the, a cry of the heart. This is, yes. Well, and when you're talking about this outpouring, to me, I mean, I love it for in different places in the Humanist or in the Bible where it's so poetic. Um, when it, in Hebrew, uh, in 28, where he says, uh, rip to shreds, but in Hebrew, it's parof, parof. Mm -hmm. I don't know, to me, it's kind of emotional. It's very, the, the, repeating those words, but slightly differently. Um, just to me, it's kind of emotional. It kind of reinforces that emotionalness 
That's right. And taruf taraf, which means ripped to shreds. Right? That's where the word treif comes from, by the way, if you know uh, uh, Yiddish. Treif means non-kosher food. That means it's been torn by beasts, not slaughtered hum- according to uh, um, the proper way. So that's where treif comes from. It's from taruf, taraf, torn by beasts. So I would also say that taruf, taraf, torn to bits, is the exact opposite of shalom. Right? It's the exact opposite of wholeness. Um, so the word is not chosen by accident. So still, how is shalom going to be restored? How is that sense of wholeness, of reconciliation, of fullness? Of, that's the question. And it says, Joseph could no longer restrain himself before all who were standing in attendance on him. So he cried, send everyone away from me, so that no one else was there when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. He gave voice to a loud wail, and the Egyptians heard, Pharaoh's palace heard. And Joseph then said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Ha'od avichai? Is my father still alive? What a dumb question. He just told him 14 times. So we are not, we are in the realm of profound emotion here, profound trauma, right? It's like, is Joseph waking up from a trance of 20 years of forgetting? What's going on? That's why this is so, such an amazing, dramatic moment. Um, And then it says, and his brothers could not answer him. They recoiled in fear, nivhalu. Bahal, bahala is both fear and astonishment. Uh, uh, bahala is like speechless. What's the word? Dumbfounded and astonished and terrified. That's bahala as all of that. So Joseph then went on to say to his brothers. So Judah makes this long speech. Joseph then can't restrain himself, pours his heart out, then they can't respond to him. And Joseph went on and said to his brothers, Geshuna, come, draw near to me. So they drew near and he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold to Egypt. Now, don't be troubled and don't be chagrined because you sold me here, for it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. There have already been two years of famine in the land, and there remain five more years without plowing or harvesting. So God sent me ahead of you to keep assure your survival in the land and to keep you alive for a great deliverance. That echoes the deliverance that's going to happen in you know, the next book of the Torah. So it's not you who sent me here, but the God who made me a father to Pharaoh, Av le Pharaoh, a lord of all his household. A father to Pharaoh is uh, a figure of speech, right? <coughs> a ruler of the whole land of Egypt. Hurry back up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me a lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not delay. 
You can settle in the land of Goshen and be near to me. You, your children, and your children's children, your flocks and herds, and all that you own. I will sustain you there, for there remain five more years of famine, so that you and your household and all that you own are not impoverished. And I should say, they stay a lot longer than five years. That's another story, right? Mm -hmm. This isn't going to be just a five-year sojourn. Something ha Look, you can see with your own eyes, and so can my brother Benjamin, that it's my mouth speaking to you. <laughs> Tell my father how they honor me in Egypt and all that you have seen. Oh, Joseph, I don't know. You know, that's not exactly the right thing to say to them at this moment. But. <laughs> hurry, hurry up and bring my father down to here. He then fell weeping upon his brother Benjamin's neck, and Benjamin wept on his neck. He kissed all his brothers and wept with them. Only after that, Chain dibru echavito, could they speak with him. It's my favorite. I love this story. I just love this story. What a scene. And so I'm trying to think that, how did Joseph says, I am Joseph, is my father really alive? I just picture him weeping and pouring out those words. He's, he's, he's alive? He's really alive? You know what I mean? It's, uh, it's not a ra this is not rational debate. Yeah. I was also thinking, in the light of what Rabbi Sachs had said, what I was saying before about his feeling his father had cut him off, so it was kind of, is my father really alive to me? Yeah. Oh. He really cares about me. Oh. He's never gotten over mm -hmm. Because mm -hmm. this is the first, so much of the speech is it's the first he hears that Jacob continues to mourn him. So that's, that's beautiful. Yeah. So the rabbis say, what did Judah do? And they have a famous analogy. They say in the Midrash that it's like someone who is stuck in a pit and someone else sees them there and reaches down to them to pull them out. Right? So the rabbis understand this in, this, in that, that midrash, that what Judah's doing, Joseph is the one who's lost here. He's uh, in the pit again. He's, in, he's still in the pit. He's still in the yeah. pit. Yeah. Joseph is, even though he's the viceroy of Egypt, Joseph is still in the pit. At the law, at everything that happened, he, he, at the trauma of, of what happened. So in the psychological reading that the rabbis give this, Joseph is still in that pit. Yeah. And his memory is frozen at that His moment. memory is frozen there. Because somehow he has to prove, look who I am now, just to prove that he isn't always in that pit. Yeah. And think of all the people in the world who, no matter what their external accomplishments and the accomplishments that are real, mm -hmm. are still the wounded child. Mm -hmm. You know, they still are can't believe they still think they're liars. Still, of, still feeling like a fraud. So yeah. Praise and see what I have, Pharaoh has made me, even though he still feels he may be a fraud. Mm -hmm. I think so. Yeah. yeah. I was wondering when you said that. The fraud is fraudishness. But the dam of tears. Has been oh, broken. Yeah. And twice he goes out in the hall and weeps. Over and over again. In other words, this is a psychological thriller. That's Reconstruction. It's Shakespeare at his best. That's what I mean. This is Shakespearean, right? Totally. Mm -hmm. That's why it's great literature. That's why, again, I've, forgive me, I've never read the book, but Thomas Mann wrote a 1400 page novel 
called Joseph and his brothers, based on these chapters. Because it's all just sitting there for us to like write, write in all the backstory of the whole thing. So what makes it possible for Joseph to forgive his brothers? Let's look at that. Um, for one thing, Judah has, because of his learned empathy, is able somehow, by pleading from his heart about the father, something, some dam breaks in Joseph. That's one thing that appears to happen here, wouldn't you say? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but what else? The other thing is something that we have to credit Joseph with, which is that Joseph understands, or how shall I say this? Joseph is able to interpret everything that's happened happened in his life as part of a bigger plan. But wait, wait, look, if it hadn't happened, I wouldn't be here in order to save your lives. So somehow, this is all for the best. Everything that happened, right? That is the perspective of a truly mature <laughs> soul, you know. If you can get to the point where all the crap that happened to you seems to have had a purpose and that it allowed you to be the person you are today in a position to save your brother's life, then that seems to be another piece of the puzzle, is that you have to be able to interpret your life not as a victim of circumstance, but as somehow... Uh, as the center of your hero's journey. I think he's been a visionary um, externally, and now all of a sudden he's uh, learned how to be a visionary in his own life. Perhaps. Perhaps this also turns it for him. But um, if we don't... You know, it's hard to... When I'm, when I'm talking with each year's bar and bat mitzvah kids, I try to give them the idea that they're... You know, that these stories in the Torah are like, you know... <clears throat> If they want to talk Harry Potter, I try to talk Harry Potter. If they want to talk Lord of the Rings, whatever hero story they want to talk about, you know, that, that if you don't view your own life as an important hero's journey, then the, the trials that we all encounter inevitably on our, in our life, and everyone encounters trials, if they're not in the context that your life matters and that there's a lesson for you to learn, a treasure for you to bring home, a... Uh, um, a maiden in Lottie's to, you know, to, to, to acquire and mate with. Uh, how, whatever the hero's journey is, if you don't see the trials that you're put through as tests um, that are helping you become the hero you are meant to be, bring the gifts back that you are meant to give, then your life's going to feel utterly meaningless. I wish everyone could get that one teaching because all the great people who committed suicide or lost hope or didn't understand how to read their life in those terms, you know, just imagine I know. that could be different. In Deuteronomy, in one of, again, one of the, one of the most powerful lines for me, uh, God says to, uh, to the people, uh, Mo- Moses says to the people, remember these 40 years that God led you through the wilderness in order to test you to find out what was in your hearts. So the wilderness sojourn in that moment is understood as a trial. The trial of wandering through our lives. 
you know, to find out what we're made of. So for me, this is very important. If we don't have a narrative about our life, that, it's, that we're headed somewhere and that the things that happen to us are part of our story and we get to, we get to weave that narrative as we go through our lives. It changes in each phase of life, but um, then we are going to remain in the pit of despair, right? Remain in the pit of powerlessness. Remain in the uh, um, pit of, mean, of, of like, well, now that I'm, and I've talked about this a lot in the past, Joseph by, could have looked at his life of ups and downs and said, well, life's a real crapshoot. <laughs> and I'm just glad I'm on top right now. And I'm going to try to stay here. You know, that's one response to life. Absolutely. Uh, but that's not what he says. He says, oh, no, don't feel bad, guys. At this moment, whatever broke just, whatever damn just broke within me, don't feel bad, because I see the big picture right at this moment. And that makes sense to me, too, yeah. that in these moments of intensity around a death, or uh, we, we understand things for a moment that we generally are obtuse or are opaque to us. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. So it makes sense to me that at this moment of massive release, he also sees more. Do you know? So. And, and it's all about removing all that regret. Oh, that we carry overriding anything that's happening at the moment that regret goes in between and if by this all the regret on both sides can be lifted wow mm -hmm. now more, we'll find out that all the regret on the brothers part is not lifted uh, the, the brothers continue to wonder whether Joseph's for real or not because they can't quite believe it um, but uh, that's, and that comes up two more times but, Barb, did you want to say something? I was just thinking about, you know, brothers and sisters in general and the crap that each, I don't know about anybody else, but <laughs> the, crap, the crap that brothers My and family sisters, was just a... Yeah, throw it all, all. and no matter how angry you are or how many years you put between you or whatever, there's still that, well, and I'm speaking for myself, but I think it speaks for many people, uh, there's that bond that even you're like, oh my God, she's my sister, or she's brother and I want to kill her or I want to do this, but she's still, or he's still my sister or my brother. Um, and, you know, I don't know. It's I understand. And I've been blessed with uh, my two brothers. You know, we're all fairly, I guess, Normal. healthy <laughs> people who, but we experienced all of our crap growing up, including trying to kill each other, you know, when we were fighting and playing sports and playing games together, it's like my brother was my nemesis, right? I mean, I know what, I, I, have, I have brothers, so that's sort of my growing up experience. And, uh, and yet, by whatever grace, at this stage of our lives, we can talk about it, and it's not really, it's operative, but only in a kind of background way, and we like we can look at it and, in, and know that that's not what our experience is now of being together. It's a beautiful thing. And I know plenty of families that, that where some people, just some of the siblings never get there, never get there. Um, other hands, there were other hands. Yeah, I was, I was going to say that in my family, I have cousins on both my father's side and my mother's side. 
my father's sister died a few years ago, and no one called me. Even though she had been invited to both my kids' weddings, and as far as I knew, everything was fine, they also stopped speaking to my father, told him there was a funeral, but never told him where. Right, and it turned out that of the two cousins in that family, um, one died a few years ago, so the fact that I kept trying to call, because he was the only number I had and not getting an answer was because he was dead. <laughs> right, and I finally was able to get hold of his sister by a lawyer friend I know who illegally managed to find her, and she said, well, your father said he didn't want to come to the funeral, and I said, he never said that. He said he couldn't drive by himself. And, and then we talked, and I said, you know, I'm so sorry. And she said she started to cry, and she said, well, it was felt so much better that she was told that I'd tell her this. And I said, you know, I'd love to see you. And she said, no, there's no point. We have no relationship. I used to babysit for her. Whoa. Right. And on the other side, on my mother's side, we just had a funeral of the first cousin, and I have some wonderful cousins on that side. But none of us knew each other as children because the adults were, as one of them said, say, well, that year they weren't speaking to us. This year, and then she said, my grandfather, who was their grandfather, lived with us until he died. And she said, of course, none of us knew him because he wasn't speaking to any of us. And I said, the story I got was that none of you were speaking to him. <laughs> and our agreement years ago when we met as adults was that none of these stories were meaningful. They were stories. Uh -huh. They were not our business. We could never make sense of them because they all contradicted each other. But the point, and we met in a neutral place the first time we met, and we discovered we really like each other. Oh, thank we God. really, really like each other. So all these cousins have connections on this side, on the uh -huh. other side. But, um, yeah, I mean, she was saying on Monday, Judy said that, you know, she thinks that generation, at least in our circles, they just didn't know how to say, you know, I think something went wrong in our last meeting. Can we talk about it? Because I don't want to lose touch with you. They just stopped talking to each other. It happens so All much. Yeah. So yeah. much. And it's terrible. Cause, it's terrible. You know, I mean, these were cousins I wish I had known you know, when I was younger, because we only met in our mid-30s. Mm -hmm. You know, when someone was doing a genealogy project, and she went to her grandfather and said, how many siblings did you have? And he said, well, I don't know how, I know what I had. There were three. I don't know if any of them were alive, because none of them speak to me. <laughs> and his daughter started calling the cousins. Wow. Right, so the first call was to me was, is this the house of the former Gale messenger? We were in our mid-30s. Wow, well, I'm glad she wanted to do that. <laughs> wow. She stood forward. Andy, you want to say something? Yeah, I'm just curious, back, back to the uh, <clears throat> kind of character development of Judith getting ready to right. stand up to the uh, leadership role. So, so I keep on wondering when they discovered the frayed Benjamin that had it, you know, the stolen, whatever it was, goblet. Um, was there any conversation? Did anybody do any commentary on what Benjamin, how Benjamin reacted? No. Yeah. No, that's great. I've n now you just made my, my brain keep going with it. Let me just say something about that. Yeah. So maybe Joseph's brothers didn't trust him because they'd just been traumatized for unbelievably, you know, Joseph could have, uh, if Joseph had been in a different place internally when they showed up Joseph could have said it's me Joseph 
how's that? You know, but instead, he puts them through cha- several chapters of torture. Um, and so I wasn't thinking of Benjamin per se, but that certainly explains why his brothers would have to be continually reassured by him in later chapters. Uh, right after, at the end of Genesis next week, when um, after Jacob dies, it's, there's an episode where, Joseph's, where the brother, Joseph's brothers come to him and, and make up a story. And they say, Dad said on his deathbed to promise that we would all get along. And uh, well, i got to see what it says exactly. Hold on. Um, I think it's in chapter 50, which is the last chapter of... Uh, um, yeah, 350. Right. Um, on page 315. You can look at it if you want. It's chapter 50 of... Uh, So Joseph and his brothers, Joseph leaves Egypt to go bury his father in the family burial cave up in uh, um, uh, Hebron. And it's the first time he's left Egypt. Then he goes back. He returned to Egypt. He has, isn't it odd that he returned? It's like, on the one hand, on the other hand, it's great to be king, you know. Joseph then returned to Egypt, he, his brothers, and all who had gone with him to bury his father after burying his father. Joseph's brothers, seeing that their father was dead, now said, Perhaps Joseph still bears us enmity and intends to repay us for all the harm that we inflicted upon him. So they brought a charge to Joseph, saying, Your father left this charge before his death, saying, Thus shall you say to Joseph, Please, I beg of you, forgive the transgression of your brothers and their, kin- their sin, though they inflicted harm upon you. Yet now please forgive the transgression of the servants of your father's God. And so they're making this up, according to the text. There's no evidence that, that this happened. Joseph wept as they spoke to him. Just brings him to tears again. His brothers also prostrated themselves before him and said, Here we are, your slaves. Which is what they said before, you know, at the end of uh, Miketz. And this is also fulfilling the dream. Oh, it is fulfilling the dream. Joseph, Joseph said to them, thank you, have no fear, for am I in place of God? Though you intended me harm, God intended it for good, in order to accomplish what is now the case, to keep alive a numerous people. Now therefore have no fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. And thus he did comfort them and speak straight to their hearts. Joseph is very admirable by the, this point in that there's something very deep and consistent about him. Yeah? Is there any midrash on the possibility that all these brothers are part of the same entity, the same person even, personage, in a sense, that within us we compete, we have various aspects of ourselves competing for primacy? I'm not familiar with Midrash that speaks in those terms precisely, but that gets back to the original thread of whether we're talking about an external 12 people or an internal zodiac, you know, an internal comprehensive shalom. What, that that what, what's going on here is 
the, the attempt to restore shalom to uh, us or me or, or we, whatever we are, or the cosmos, because in, in Kabbalistic texts, the, you know, and not just Kabbalistic, but even more ancient, each of these suns is also one of the zodiac uh, houses. So it's like the <coughs> as above, so below, you know, the restoration of cosmic wholeness and, fa- and the wholeness of the B'nai Yisrael, the children of Israel. They're all, they're not contradicting each other. They're all like different levels of the same story. Yeah. What interests me is that yeah, I haven't studied Torah in many years and never went through the whole thing for sure. But it always, we talk about this as a book of literature, and yet mm-hmm. it always struck me that way as well, but absent the uh, fundamental construct of literature with the protagonist that has multiple aspects, you know, and, and, and people who have ambiguity, uh, because these guys come as flashpoints, shorter durations or longer durations, but they kind of serve a central purpose in their thesis is, is, is unitary. And yet, seeing them all, at, at least in, in, in groupings, all being the one, become, they, they become a series of larger, complete holes. Uh, mm-hmm. Yes. I, I don't know if you understand what I'm saying. I think I do. But I, I don't think it's an either-or proposition. I'm sure not. Um, that because there's a lot of character depth and development in the key players in the, in the text. And at the same time, there's a much larger game, a much, the much larger game going. This isn't just the book of stories, right? The theme is that there is a creator who wants to imbue us, human be- humanity, with moral awareness. And uh, that's the big, big narrative. Are we going to do it? Can we make it? Will we succeed? You know, and boy, is that ever true today, right? Oh, yeah. As we watch the earth hang in the balance, it's like we are living in biblical times here. Um, so yes, I understand. I think I understand what you're saying. Let's read. Marie, want to add something? Well, I just keep thinking back about re- reevaluation therapy for counseling. Uh, yes. And the, when I was introduced to it, the basis was that the depths of one can get into their grief and crying opens the gateways to healing. That's right. And that's what it felt like. Yes, these are, these, this Joseph is the... Joseph and Judah could not stop crying. Mm-hmm. Yes, there's a healing that's going on here with the release of that pent up... Mm-hmm. And it allows the suppressed memories of Joseph to come pouring out. It's a moment of dramatic emotional uh, uh, um, release. And at that point, you can only be humble. You can't be, I mean, it's like he still says, well, Pharaoh wants me this, but I'm melting inside. Right. Yeah. Right. It's all pouring out, finally. It was frozen. It was frozen. Yes, Joseph was frozen in that pit no matter what else had happened to him, until Judah was able, through his own maturation and depth of character, to reach into the pit. And Israel, um, same thing. His heart becomes... That's what we're going to look at next. What if yeah. it's best for someone to stay in the pit? What, what if the unfreezing 
There's two anguish in it. Does the Torah address... Not, every not in this case. It doesn't address that scenario. Uh, that's a deep question, isn't it? It's a deep question. And for me, the answer ethically is you don't... You know, I, I grew up in the 70s when I tried every kind of primal scream therapy and every kind of let it all hang out. And, you know, you learn from your mistakes. It's like not everybody wants to, is ready to, or needs to go there. Uh, I can only be the track, keep track of my own needs. So the kind of interventionist, uh, active, like, cry stuff, it's like I don't do that with people anymore. Right? I did that for a long time as I was learning, but no, I kind of look for the signals. And I try to trick, tr when I'm counseling someone, I'm trying to follow their cues mm -hmm. so that I'm not imposing them releasing or revealing something that they're not ready to reveal. Mm -hmm. To themselves. To themselves, exactly. Uh, and yet, hopefully, and this remains my thesis, my loving presence, uh, um, uh, as it were, um, prepares, the, um, uh, uh, fertilizes and prepares the ground so that if it's going to sprout, it's not trying to push through asphalt, but through, you know, um, and then that's, that's how I, I mean, I paid a lot of attention to this because uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a therapy kind of adventurer by nature and have done that for my whole adult life. Yeah. Longer. Longer. I first went to a shrink when I was nine. <laughs> so... <laughs> Works for me. I don't think Woody Allen even started that. <laughs> it was one of the best things my parents. It was one of the smartest things my parents ever did. Was was when I was I was struggling and and I said to them in in the you know, I, I remember mom telling me that I said I need help, help me. And my parents decided to send me to a child psychiatrist, who turned out to be a very important person in all through my, uh, right through my high school. Yeah. So I've been lucky mm -hmm. with therapy. You have to get lucky too, mm -hmm. and run into good people. Mm -hmm. Anyhow, uh, so I just wanted to uh, bounce off of that. Um, you know, in healing work, when, for instance, in my experience with emotional release work, it has to be first of all that you create a safe environment, mm -hmm. but then it's the person who's receiving who dictates how many layers of the onion they wish to drop. Exactly. But you offer the the uh, container in which they feel safe to do so because, you know, if people do it too much, and I did that too, the batting of the batting therapy, they give you a plastic bat and you're mm -hmm. screaming in your head. If it comes out without you being prepared, it's a negative experience. Right, right. That's what we're all, uh, that's traumatic. what we're discussing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So let's go on a little with the story um, to see what happens next. <laughs> um, because I want to get now to when they go back to their dad, to, to Father Jacob. So we're on page 289. That's verse 16 of chapter 45. So the very dramatic reconciliation moment has passed, is, is now happened, and the report was heard in Pharaoh's palace. Joseph's brothers have arrived, and this pleased Pharaoh and his courtiers. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, do this. Load up your beasts, head straight for the land of Canaan, 
and take your father and your households and come to me. I will give you the best that the land of Egypt offers. Come eat the fat of the land. Moreover, so in the large, so now our attention, my attention immediately shifts back to the much larger multi-generational narrative of, oh my God, they're being, Pharaoh's inviting them to come eat, give them the best, eat off the fat of their land, and what's going to happen, you know. Um, moreover, you are instructed to say, do this, take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and your wives and convey your father and come. And don't look with regret at your household goods. Just leave them, because the best that the whole land of Egypt offers is yours. So Israel's sons set about, by Yesuchim b'nei Yisrael, Israel's sons, the children of Israel, set about doing this. Joseph provided them with wagons at Pharaoh's command, and he gave them provisions for the journey. To each he furnished a change of clothing. There's that clothing again that we talked about so, so many times. But to Benjamin, he gave 300 pieces of silver and five changes of clothing. Benjamin is his blood brother, right? Everyone else is his half-brother. But Benjamin is the... And so he's his brother-brother, I guess. Uh, and to his father, he sent some 10 asses laden with fine Egyptian goods and 10 she-asses carrying grain and bread and food to his father for the road. He sent... And this is an interesting phrase that gets treated a lot. He sent his brothers forth... And as they were going, he said to him, said to them, Altir Gazu don't be anxious along the way. That means there were police people along the way. No, there are so many interpretations about what this means. Because what's Roges? What's Broges? Uh, in Yiddish, you know, it's like irritated, angry. Right. Quarrelsome. Quarrelsome. Right, quarrelsome. So anxious. I looked it up. Rogez is quarrelsome, anxious, um, angry. Uh, so you could interpret this so many ways. Is he saying, and there are many, many interpretations. Is he, why is he telling them this? Is he saying, don't be afraid? Because that could, Al-Turkazoo could mean don't be afraid or anxious. Uh, and one interpretation, one commentary says, yes, because you're carrying all these goods, but that you'll be uh, assaulted by bandits along the way. Don't worry, God is with you. Or does it mean... Don't beat yourselves up. You know, maybe Joseph is still in this place of just uh, don't quarrel with each other. It's like it's over. It's done. Forget about it. We don't know, but it's an interesting phrase. Uh, it doesn't say to go in peace. He doesn't say go in peace. You're right. He says don't go in rogues, in, in anxious, quarrelsome. Uh huh. We're getting close to restoring some shalom here. And the next person that has to be confronted and approached, how, is Jacob. Mm -hmm. Jacob has been in grief for 20 years. Inconsolable. And deceived. Mm -hmm. And he was the deceiver. He thinks Joseph is dead. He was the deceiver. Now he's been deceived. He thinks Joseph is dead. He's, 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 he's not been the same man for 20 years. And he doesn't know that Joseph's alive. What's going to happen now? They went up from Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to Jacob, their father. When they told him, Od Yosef Chai, Joseph is still alive, and he holds sway over the whole land of Egypt. 
Vayafog libo, ki lo hemin lahem. His heart froze. Uh, yafog, I looked it up. It also means faint. His heart, his heart stopped. That's what it means. Um, it froze in his chest because he did not, he didn't, could not believe them. But when they told him all that Joseph had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to convey him, Vatechi Ruach Yaakov Avihem, Joseph's spirit came alive. Uh, it's a powerful paragraph, isn't it? And then he's Israel. And then Israel said, Rav, enough. That comes up a lot. Rav Lach Shevet Bahar You enough. You've been here long enough. Enough. And I, my son Joseph is still alive. I must go and see him before I die. And uh, I just really like this paragraph. There's a lot of expansive midrash about this. Um, And so that's the end of the chapter. Let's go on a little further because there's an interesting passage here. I, I do notice. Yeah. Maybe this well, actually, I have a lot to say about this, too. What do you notice? I, I notice they don't tell, they don't confess. No, they don't. They're deceit. They don't. Not in this little text here. Our, Joseph is still alive, and we have something to tell you, Dad. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, Jacob is 130 years old, and that gets back to the, just the last discussion we are having. When do you tell somebody the whole story? Yeah. And when do you say, I guess maybe they don't really need to know this anymore. That was a long time ago. Mm-hmm. That's a good question, isn't it? Mm-hmm. That's a really good question. And you know, it brings to mind, there's an important Jewish mitzvah called Shalom Bayit, which means harmony in the household, peace in the house, which is about the family. And to maintain Shalom Bayit, considered a very high deal to maintain a harmony in your household. There's a lot of rabbinic discussion about it because we would have a discussion, a long discussion too. How do you maintain harmony in your household? And it's clear that telling the whole unvarnished truth is not necessarily the way to <laughs> make, right? For this, again, that was one of, my, um, one, of my, one of my sins of my youth. It's like, I wanted to be honest because I felt full revelation and total, you know, I was in that, when I was in the 70s, what can I say? That was the context I grew up in. Um, and the 60s, you know, but really my teenage, you know, I was born in 55. So, uh, um, uh, sh- so it's an interesting thought since I've talked so much about shalom in this class that this concept of shalom by it does not necessarily include complete revelation or letting it all hang out. But are you doing it from a place of shame mm-hmm. or from a place of thoughtfulness? You know, that, I think that would be one of the questions to ask. Are you doing it from a place of covering your ass or from a place of what's best for the other person? Um, good questions to, to throw out there. Miriam and then Rip Barb. Does it anywhere say where the brothers say anything about what they did? Never. No. They do, don't they to each other? To each other, yeah. That's what I'm saying, to 
there. Oh, yeah. And Joseph here. More than once. More than once they say, oh, this is happening to us because of what we did to Joseph. And they're talking about it amongst themselves. And they're like, they're right. like arguing. Joseph over here says, yes, he does. In one at least, he does. Yeah. Yeah, Joseph, who they think doesn't speak Hebrew, right. understands everything they're saying. And that's part of what that happened to me in uh, one of those stereo shops in Manhattan once. <laughs> I speak Hebrew, and I go in to buy something, and everyone behind the counter is Israeli, and they're talking to each other about how much they think they should charge me. <laughs> and I said to them, you know, I understand everything you're saying. <laughs> I still remember that. <laughs> Darn it, you should have listened to them. <laughs> Anyhow, yeah, so the, yeah, go ahead, Barb. Well, is it possible when he, when he says, when Jacob says enough, that um, maybe there's even... Oh, that's a great reading. Don't say any more. He's alive. That's it. Okay. That's a great reading. I never thought of that. Well, that... So, I got to look at that again. That's just beautiful. Um... Uh, they showed him the wagons, and Israel said, enough. My son Joseph is alive. I'm going to go and see him before I die. Huh. I don't need to know anymore, please. Yeah. That's, That's fascinating. I can hear that reading. Yeah. There's one more, um, something I'd read. Yeah. I don't know who wrote it, but related to that, which was that um, when they come to him and say, whatever the phrasing was about he was torn by a wild beast, Apparently, the understanding was that as the older brothers, the three elders, would have been responsible for him. Mm -hmm. Okay, but in the law of that time, if a wild beast attacked and tore someone apart, they were no longer liable. <laughs> and this was a legalistic statement that they made to Jacob. Mm -hmm. And when Jacob hears it. It doesn't mean he necessarily, this was the commentary, that he believes them, but he's accepting the legality of the statement, you know, what it's supposed to do. So it's his <coughs> formal acceptance, but it doesn't mean he necessarily fully believes that it happened that way or that it happened at all. And my thought after that, what that was my thought, was that part of his mourning for so long, he never sees the body. He doesn't know for sure. Mm -hmm. And like people with missing in action, Mm. You know, it's mm. different. You can mm. never let it go. Mm. It's never, it's, that's right, it's never finished. Until now. But so that he may have had questions. That was another commentary. I thought it was brilliant. And one I never great. knew. Great. So, yeah. That's great. Thank you. So there's a couple more points I want to make before our time is up. So one thing that could, we could explore for a long time, which we have in other years, is that, um, <coughs> is that this... This idea of J Jacob's heart freezing and not believing them, and that it means that he's like, the shock could kill him, mm -hmm. right? Uh, uh, there's a beautiful midrash. Next, in the next, in this next chapter, forty-six, the seventy people in jo jo Jacob's household are enumerated. The seventy children and grandchildren that go down to Egypt. And again, 70 is the number in biblical terms of, it's like 12. 70 is, there are 70 languages. There are 70 nations. That's what gets, so it's like all. 
So that's, that's the household, the sort of core of what's going to become the children of Israel. But among those 70, there are two women. One is Dina, who are named. One is Dina, who is uh, the daughter. And the other is Asher's daughter, Serach. This, this, this woman named Serach, who for some reason gets mentioned here and gets mentioned one more time later. And we've spent a whole class on the, the legends of Serach because it, it begs for storytelling. Why this one woman named out of all the other, you know, when all, so we won't have time to do that today, but Serach, the brother, here's, here's, um, here's from a midrash about this story. The brother said, if we tell him right away, Joseph is alive, perhaps he'll have a stroke. Literally, his soul will fly away. What did they do? They said to Serach, the daughter of Asher, tell our father Jacob that Joseph is alive and he's in Egypt. So how did she do it? She waited till Jacob was standing in prayer and then said, <clears throat> and then sang in a tone of wonder, Joseph is in Egypt. There have been born on his knees Menashe and Ephraim. But you have to hear it in Hebrew. It's, it's a bit of doggerel. Yosef b'Mitzrayim, Yoldulo al Birkayim, Menashe v'Ephraim. So, how does she? She, she doesn't go for um, uh, frontal, direct storytelling. She sings a rhyme to him while he's praying. Isn't that beautiful? How do you reach? How do you? How, it's just a beautiful midrash. I just love that. And then it says, his heart failed while he was standing in prayer. But when he finished his prayer, he saw the wagons and immediately the spirit of Jacob came back to life. So Serach, in this famous midrash, sings this rhyme, which is not in the text here. But the, the, the folks interpreting this, just like we are, are saying, how did they do this? They just said, hey, dad. You know, <laughs> That's, look at the state Jacob is in and has been in. So they find this beautiful, a little girl to sing a song to him while he's, I just love that story. I love that. Do they say in the Midrash about how old she is? No, but, but it's, it's, what's important is that Serach gets mentioned again in the lists of people who left Egypt. So, a whole incredible story emerges of her as being the oldest person to leave Egypt. And the rest of the story goes, so she went down, a little girl, and then somehow, maybe she was 200 years old, or it doesn't matter, you know, because we're not talking history here, uh, was still alive at the end, and remembered Joseph's dying words, which are, God will remember you. And so when Moses comes and says, God has remembered you, the people have all forgotten. And they go to Serach in the Midrash, in the telling, and they say to Serach, what's going on? Oh, I, that's what Joseph said. And then they start to believe Moses. So Serach has this beautiful, yes, Evelyn? And when Joseph dies, he's buried there in, in Egypt. And in a coffin. In a coffin, but... He says, "When when you decide when when you leave 
Egypt, take my bones with you. And at some point, Pharaoh sinks the coffin in the Nile. Not in the, in the Midrash. In the Midrash. It, he sinks the coffin in, in, the, in the Nile, and Sarah is the only one who knows where it is. So she speaks to Moshe and says, don't forget Joseph, and I can show you where his coffin is. And that's Right, Pharaoh. that's another Sarah story. And isn't it true? She also never died? There's another Midrash that she says she, she, that she never died, that like Elijah, she went up to heaven. And there's more stories. The Persian Jewish community has um, like the grave of Serach in there. I was reading all about Serach. It's a fascinating, beautiful literary sort of thing that goes on. That right. It so sort she of, be, she, she be becomes, let's just say she becomes the stuff of legend. Mm, yeah. Right. Because she's the only female mentioned here, and then she's mentioned again. So who was she? All we have is two mentions in 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 these um, mentions of descendants, but she's mentioned. It's so rare and actually unique. Her mention is unique as a female, number one, and as someone who gets mentioned in both these genealogies. It's a fascinating story. And it was she generations before that. <coughs> Maybe. The mid, I have the whole thing about her. It's like I did a lot. I, I, I have every midrash about her. I, it's very cool. Um, okay, so the last thing I want to share with you is... Um, so then in chapter... The next to last thing I want to share with you is that in chapter 46, it says, Israel and all his company set off on their journey and they came to Beersheba, where he offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. It seems like Jacob has revived. I'm on page 290, chapter 46, verse 1. They came to Beersheba, where he offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. God addressed Israel in a night vision, saying, Jacob, Jacob, and he answered, Hineni. So this is one of Jacob's Hineni. Only three times does the name get mentioned twice. Avraham, Avraham when he's about to slaughter his son, and Avraham says, Hineni. Here, Yaakov, Yaakov, and he says, Hineni. And then Moshe, Moshe at the burning bush. And Moshe says, Hineni. Didn't uh, Joseph say Hineni? I'm talking about when the name is repeated twice. Oh, I see. I got it. I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I'll make you a great people there. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will most surely bring you back up as well. And Joseph will lay his hand upon your eyes, which I think most people think means when you die, he'll be the one to close your eyes. Um, so then, in, and so he went down, they took everything, they went down to Egypt. Then it says in verse 8, these are the names. That's where Serach gets mentioned. Did you see that? That, and then if you turn the page, because we won't read them all right now, because there's one more thing I want to show you. So then that section ends on verse 26 on page 292. All the people who came with Jacob to Egypt, who came forth from his loins, apart from the wives of Jacob's sons, were 66 people in all. And the sons of Joseph born to him in Egypt were two individuals. And the member of Jacob's family who came to Egypt were 70 in all. And then, verse 28, this is the last thing I wanted to point out. Judah, he sent ahead of him to Joseph to show him the way to Goshen. So isn't it interesting that Judah at this point is singled out 
as the one who's going to um, uh, it echoes what happens at the beginning of the Parsha Judah's the one who can reach Joseph right? the two of them are connected now somehow and it gets reinforced and Judah is now clearly the leader and he has earned that uh, title and capacity so I find that this line echoes Judah approached by Yigash, the beginning of the portion, by Yigash Elav Yehuda. Judah approached Joseph, meaning he reached, he, he actively extended himself toward him. And then here it says, and Joseph, so Jacob now, Judah, he sent ahead of him to Joseph. Lahorot uh, lefanav goshna to to show him, uh, instruct him how to get to Goshen, and Joseph harnessed his chariot and went up to meet his father Israel in Goshen. So he sends jo- Judah to Joseph to come up to Goshen to meet his father, and so Judah is completing. I hadn't thought about this till this moment. Judah Judah gets to complete the the reuniting, the reconciliation the, uh, that he began at the beginning of the Parsha by actually going, he goes and gets Joseph and brings him to Goshen to see his dad. That's beautiful. I never noticed that before. And he presented himself to him and threw himself on his neck, weeping all the time. And Israel said to Joseph, now that I've seen your face, for you're still alive, I can die at last. I think at this moment, shalom has been restored in, 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 that, in that sense of family and in that sense of cosmic wholeness. And ironically, it's being restored outside of the land of Israel, down in the land of Goshen, because there's no stasis that's one of the things about peace. It's not an absent... It, peace is not stasis, right? It's a state of wholeness uh, in Hebrew uh, that um, we experience from time to time that's inevitably going to be disrupted again. But here, I see this moment where they're reunited. Judah goes and gets his little brother bring him to his dad, they weep. <sighs> that moment, it's very satisfying and moving to me every time I encounter it. And what I had never seen before was this little bit where Judah gets to do it, complete, complete the project, as it were. So, well, that's what I wanted to explore with you today. Powerful. Thanks for doing it with me. It tells me that we have to live to trust and change, so we can't give up. Can't give up.